0: Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you do reign supreme. We thank you that you are sovereign over history, that you are uh, bringing all of history to its appointed end because it's your story. Uh, You started it um, and you will carry it on to completion and on into eternity. And Lord, I thank you that you have allowed uh, our stories, the stories that you have crafted before the foundations of the earth were even established, to intersect with your ultimate story of what you are doing in this world. Um, and so, Father, I just pray that as we, uh, as we explore the context of Ruth, Lord, and as we uh, explore the ins and outs of historical narrative as a whole, Father, I pray that our time in your word would allow us to get a larger and clearer picture of who you are and what you are doing. And how our lives intersect with that. How our each and every day is an invitation to look up. To see you as you are. To see what you are doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And how all of it, Lord... All of it points back to you and a reason to praise you in your glorious name. And so, Holy Spirit, just have your way in this time. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Got a little transition Sunday here. We are done talking about Jonah. Anyone excited about that? Were any of you, like, not feeling Jonah? Jonah? Would anyone admit that on a Sunday? I don't know. Some people don't like Jonah. I don't know what to tell you. But we're we're moving away from Ju- Jonah, and uh, we are saying hello to the book of Ruth. Uh, we could probably just read through the book of Ruth today, and it would take us about 15 minutes. Uh, it is a very tiny little book, but we are going to be spending five weeks going through it. And uh, it is actually going to work as a little bit of a transition into our Christmas series. Now, for those of you who have taken 15 minutes before and you've read through the book of Ruth, you might be sitting here wondering, what does Ruth have to do with Christmas? I, I don't really understand how that could transition us into that season. Uh, to which in my, my, my Chris Fritz impression, I would say, well, that's a very good question. To which I would say, wait and see. Um, He does that all the time. I'm like, ah, you, you got me again. I thought you were going to answer my question. But before we explore the overall context of the book of Ruth, uh, we actually decide to kind of preach two sermons in one, which I know that scares you because you know how long I preach one sermon. Um, So now to do two of them, how long are we going to be here? Again, wait and see. Um, no, today we decided that uh, in order to talk about the context for the book of Ruth, uh, we have to take a step back and really look at the literary style of the book of Ruth, um, a literary style that actually matches the book that we were just out of, uh, or that we were just in, rather, the book of Jonah, and a literary style that actually makes up uh, almost 80% of the Old Testament, and uh, that is historical narrative Um, and so we need to understand a little bit more about this literary form so we know how to approach this book and again the majority of the Old Testament right because if I was to if I was to sit up here and read to you a Tennyson poem or if I was to read from Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman we would read that a little differently than we would the morning newspaper right does anyone still get newspapers do we still anyone do that Anyone? Rob Blair, you look like a newspaper guy. No, you're also frugal, so maybe you don't. That's fine. Um, it's wisdom, people. It's okay. You know, it's all online. Anyway, um, we read through those things a little different, right? In the same way, uh, we read through the Psalms differently than we read through the. Book of Ruth, or then we read through the law, or we read through the epistle. Otherwise, if we don't understand the the literary things that are going on there, we'll walk away with like pictures on our wall, uh, with like God underneath, and it will be like a, a very tall tower with wings. Because he's our strong tower, and we rest in the shadow of his wings, and so God must be. I mean, we're, we're good at literal interpretation of scripture, right? And so we should have pictures over our fireplace of God as a very tall tower with wings. Stupid, right? How about, Caleb, stupid, right? That's stupid. We shouldn't read the Bible that way. Because we know that the Psalms are poetry. And so we read it differently than we would narrative, or law, or an epistle. And so we've got to kind of understand what this historical narrative is. Um, and pertaining to the Old Testament specifically, uh, we know that Old Testament narratives are historical events told in story form to reveal truth in a timeless way. So when I say Old Testament historical narrative, or when I refer to story, we're not talking Little Red Riding Hood. We're not talking Hansel and Gretel. Uh, we are talking about actual historical events, actual moments in time. And the way that God inspired the authors of Scripture to spell them out for us in His Word is to tell them in story form as a narrative. And it makes sense to us why God would choose to unfold such a large portion, portion of scripture, right? 80% of the Old Testament, he unfolds as historical narrative. In story form. Why would he do that? Well, think about it. How many of you can, even, even when I say, like, when I say, what's a good story? How many of your minds can immediately pull from a, a, just a, a large database of stories that you've heard in your lifetime that connect with you? Right? Because God, the author of history, the author of the ultimate story, has written the pages of time in such a way that it draws us into story. We're just, we're naturally made that way. Now, again, I've taken APUS history. I didn't take the test. It would have been a waste of time and money. But, I took APUS history had what I think was a really good history textbook. Stephen Schultz would have to read it to actually tell me if it's a good history textbook. But if you were to ask me about the latter pages of this textbook and you were to say, hey, what are, what are some things that happened in the 19th century or the 20th century? I, I really couldn't read you many lines out of that textbook, I couldn't, I couldn't pull back 10 or 15 years to when I was sitting in my APUS History class and, and spit back to you the details of that book. Now, if you ask me what major events happened in like the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as told by the movie Forrest Gump. Guys, I'm telling you, I got a, I got a whole box of chocolates up here that I could just take you through and show you one after another. Uh, again, and I haven't seen that movie for about as long as I've been in APUS history. And yet, there is something about the way in which the story was told, regardless of whether or not it was factional, factual, that stuck with me. If you were to ask me, hey, Matt, you read that APUS history textbook, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What was it like in pioneer times? Is that like is that like when they had armor and stuff like is that no like 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 little house on the prairie oh as told by michael landon i can tell you all about this because we're in season eight right now and we have one more to go and they just keep getting more kids in that little house and i'm getting really anxious and what's gonna happen mary still can't see anyway um point being there's something about that story that grips us, right? There's something about these stories that we connect with. Now, the difference is, right, when we look at a uh, Forrest Gump, when we look at nine seasons of Little House on the Prairie, we can question the source and wonder, okay, how, how, how factual is this? How true, right? What, what details are embellished? What, what things just aren't even true to that time period? And yet when we look at God's word, When we look at our source of truth, when we look at Old Testament historical narrative, we're not looking at kind of sort of true stories as told by the author of Ruth or uh, based on a true story as told by Jonah. No, we are looking at 66 books written by close to 40 authors, all telling one story. Knit together in a way that only God could do to reveal truth, to reveal life, to reveal the author of history in a timeless, memorable way. So when we say historical narrative, again, we're not talking Little Red Riding Hood. We're not talking Hansel and Gretel or Forrest Gump or, or based on a true story. We are talking about the author of life giving us history in a way that we can remember. And we need to appreciate narrative for what it is and the role that it plays within Scripture. Because again, he could have written the entire book that we know as the Scriptures in poetic form. He could have written the entire thing like a psalm or or like portions of Isaiah and, and Ezekiel that are more uh, uh, apocalyptic poetry, and he could have left us all wondering as to, well, what did he mean by this? What's the, what's the symbolism of this, right? We could all be in that place right now. As a preacher, I'm really glad that he didn't, because that would make my job really hard, He could have written the entire thing as Old Testament law, right? How many people say, oh, the Bible is just a big rule book. Mm, Not really. But he could have. He could have written the entire thing in do this, don't do this, if then, reward consequence. He could have. But he didn't. He could have written the entire thing like a Pauline epistle, which is basically just one big run-on sentence in the Greek. Could have done that. Uh, again, as a pre- I, I wish he would have, because that is really easy for me to, to preach through, right? It's a, it's a sermon. It has very specific things that it addresses in a very specific way, and you can move through, the, through those issues and follow the framework of thought. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he inspired many authors to unveil history in narrative form to the praise of all the generations that came before the Gutenberg printing press and the John MacArthur Study Bible. Can I get an amen? I mean, think about that, right? We, we look at the Old Testament and think, well, why would he unveil it in this way? Well, take this away. And you tell me about Noah and the Ark, Jonah and the Whale, Daniel in the Lion's Den. Tell me about the life of Abraham. Tell me about these things. And many of your kids can tell you in great detail. I'm I'm blown away when I ask my kids about their Sunday school lesson. They don't turn to chapter and verse, but they're pulling out details from these Bible stories that they're hearing. That I'm like, oh man, I forgot about that. And yet, they're not exegeting the text. But they are engaged with the story and that's exactly what happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is that God told history in such a way that we could recall it and retell it in a way that would allow us to point the entire world, to, to point our kids and their kids and their kids back to the one who made them, back to the one who made it all in such a way that we would stop and say, wow, how great is our God? Right. That is why we have narrative. And that's why narrative is so needed in the Bible. Um, Before we look at the book of Ruth, I want us to just look at a couple helpful characteristics of narrative, because, again, narrative isn't poetry. It isn't an epistle. And if we if we mistake narrative for being something other than what it is, we're in danger of misusing the text we're in danger of using it for something that it wasn't actually intended to do in the same way you're not supposed to read about god as a, as a as a strong fortress or a mighty tower and get a picture of god as like this this building with a bulwark around it or some winged creature like that's that's not what it's meant to take our minds to in the same way narrative has very specific features and it's trying to do something and not do other things and we need to know what that is, otherwise we're, we're going to wrongly handle the Word of God. It's all inspired, it's all God-breathed, but we can all agree that it's not all doing the exact same thing, right? It's, it's accomplishing the same purpose, but not in the same way, right? So let's try and understand a little bit about historical narrative. It reads just like any other story at face value. And I know that that word makes a lot of people nervous when I say story. You say, oh, well, that's not true. Again, go back to what Old Testament narrative is, right? It is unveiling history. It is unveiling factual, actual events that happened in time and space in a way that is memorable, that sticks with us, right? But it's going to read like a story, and praise God for that. I know we have tons of kids sitting in Sunday school right now that are so thankful that it reads like a story and not Old Testament law, That being said, you have setting. Every little bracket of a individual story, an indiv- individual narrative will have a setting where it takes place in both time and space. You will have your characters. Some of them you will like, Ruth. Some of them you will not like, Jonah. You know you know my feelings on Jonah. I was up here last time. Not a big fan of Jonah. Maybe you got it right in the end, but we don't really know, do we? jonah anyway you have your characters who are oftentimes a mixed bag of good and evil and you also have your plot complete with rise and fall in action you will have uh the big that happens and then you will have the the resolution and the conclusion within each story like any story There are lessons to be learned and there are truths that are going to be revealed. Lessons and truths that reveal both who God is and the type of people that he has called us to be. But unlike any other story, and this is very important for us to get, he pauses for emphasis. This is very important for us to get. Unlike any other story, these stories are not self-contained. Right? Right? Hansel and Gretel does not bleed into Little Red Riding Hood unless you have one of those weird modern day Disney movies where they're like making them all weave together I, I don't know whatever but point being these are not standalone moral lessons these are not standalone little stories that God gives you to say and on this day in history and now let's go over here and on this day in history and oh over here this little thing over here and and you can learn a little moral lesson here and a little bit about God over here Yes, they are their own individual spaces in time and in, in the course of history, but they don't operate that way. That is not their primary purpose. But instead, each historical account acts as a single puzzle piece that is made to fit in a much larger picture. And we need to understand that if we are going to rightly read and apply the text. It wasn't made to be standalone. It was made to be a part of a much greater whole. So while each narrative again has within itself its own uh, settings and characters and plot and 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 takeaways and, and ways in which it reveals different things about God, to simply read them as standalone Bible stories and to understand them in that way would do a huge disservice to the text because they were written to be a part of a much greater whole. Now this can grind on us a little bit When it comes to narrative, because I don't know about you, even even in our eighth season so far of Little House on the Prairie, there have been episodes that end with the dreaded three letters, or three words, rather. You know what those three words are, right? To be continued. You know what it is because it it, it eats at a part of you. That wasn't made by God. That came post-fall. I'm very certain. Also, what came post-fall? trilogies i'm sorry they did how many of you paid four thousand dollars to take your family to a theater only to find out that at the end of this movie that you put out a second mortgage on your house to go see you found out as you're like getting close to the three hour mark you start googling and you're like wait there's no way this is going to end this is there's no way they're going to resolve all of this no it's a trilogy And I'm not going to find out what happens for another 30 years because they're going to drag this out and there's going to be seven other movies that come into it. ah. There's a part of us, a very large part of us, an understandably so part of us that wants every story that we read to be its own perfect little box with a bow on top with pretty little straight lines that has a beginning, a middle, an end a rise, a fall, a resolution we all want that we were trained in school that a good story goes like this good stories don't go like this bad stories go like this and your teacher told you so And so it's understandable that we would naturally want to treat every narrative in Scripture as this standalone thing that that concludes itself. But the fact is that it doesn't. It won't. And when we try and fit it into that that square peg, into the round hole, we're going to end up making the text do things that it wasn't supposed to do. Old Testament narrative doesn't always end with a bow on top. Look at the book we just read. How does Jonah end? Anyone? Rob, what's the last ver- What What is the punctuation at the end of Jonah? <laughs> it's, I mean, honestly, like you look at the end and it's God asking a question. And you're like, oh, they forgot a verse. Because he doesn't answer it. Now what? Now what do we do? Even the book that comes before the book of Ruth ends with just kind of this, this And they all did what was right in their own eyes. And you're like, okay, well, what happens? Like, we we have to put a bow on this, and, and we don't always get that. And that's because these stories were not meant to be their own little slice of perfect history. But instead, they're revealing, they're unfolding a sovereign timeline of history purposefully, intentionally, in a way that points ahead in such a way that it points to the main thing. And when we lose sight of this, we start doing some really weird things with the text. When we lose sight of the bigger picture, we begin trying to make the narrative into something that was never intended to be. We end up with with sermon titles like, Noah, the man, the ark, and the God who is seemingly okay with drunkenness, or Jacob, lies that... God loves, or Abraham, marriage revered until death is feared. We, we, we end up looking at their narratives, trying to make them say things, make them speak into things, make them the, the, the perfect way to, to unfold every single detail that is in it in a way it wasn't made to, Right? Hansel and Gretel isn't about cavities. And yet they're eating a lot of candy. Little Red Riding Hood isn't about how the color red attracts wolves. It's just, it's not. But, but like in the story, well, I could kind of see how. And when we lose sight of the bigger picture, we end up looking at the story in a way it just wasn't made to be looked at. <clears throat> Narrative is about advancing the story. Forward, not addressing every single detail that arises, not to address every single particular issue that could come out of it, and not to resolve everything that causes you tension. It's just not. Some things are just details that are advancing the story forward, and if we misinterpret that, again, we're going to see a lot of the rhetoric that we actually see. I know these were really silly examples, right? Like, like who's going to preach Noah, the man, the ark, and the God who is down with drunkenness? Like, no one's no one's going to preach that, and yet you will see people who say, "Oh well, God, see, God was clearly okay with that because it happens here, and He doesn't He doesn't condemn it." Oh, God, God's totally okay with, with treating someone that way. Or God doesn't seem to care about this sin that much. Or, or look at this heart posture. I mean, do you really think God cares about it? Because this would have been, in my mind, the perfect place in Scripture to address this issue. And God doesn't say anything. Well, could it just be that Noah's drunkenness wasn't the point of his story? Could it just be that Abraham's decision to, to hide the fact that he was married to Sarah wasn't the point of the story? Could it just be that all of these things that, not all of them, but most of these things that we point to are better covered elsewhere in scripture? The narrative is made for a very specific purpose that we will talk about more in depth in a second. But again, we we can't make it say less than what it says, but we we certainly should not try and make it say more than what it's saying. Does that make sense? We can look elsewhere, right? God's feelings on drunkenness clearly revealed in Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians 5.21. That's a great place to look to address that issue. If you're concerned about God's feelings on whether or not He approves of lying, look at the Ten Commandments or look at Proverbs 12.22 where it says, "...the Lord detests lying lips." Don't look at this moment in Abraham's life to understand how God feels about marital faithfulness within the context of marriage. You can look at his design in Genesis 2 and you can look how it is spelled out in Ephesians 5 to get a very clear and accurate understanding of how God cares about this institution that he formed. Those are the places within Scripture that are made to address issues like that. And so when we come to the narrative, we can't get lost on the details, but we always have to be asking, what is, wh- what is this driving to? Is this the point, or am I making this the point? Is this even a sub-point, or is this just the detail that is advancing the story forward? <clears throat> Point being, while Old Testament narrative does give us insight into God's character and human morality, that is not their primary purpose. That is not their primary purpose. And so if we are looking for a moral argument or if we are trying to uh, make an indictment on God's character based on something that happened within a narrative, we have to ask ourselves, is that what the author is driving the story towards? Is that actually what the author was intending by putting this in here—to reveal something about God's character and relationship to the sin, or to uh, give us a, a green light or a red light on a particular sin? Is that what this narrative is driving at? Because if it's not, we should stop the car and get out, right? <clears throat> so, what is the primary purpose of Old Testament narrative? I'm glad you asked again, Chris Fritz. Sorry, I miss him. Come come back home, Chris. We miss you. Um, What is the primary purpose? Old Testament narratives are individual stories, individual moments in history that God uses to advance his ultimate story of redemption. That is what almost 80% of the Old Testament is driving us towards this ultimate story of redemption. And so we are, ma- we are meeting the people, the bloodlines, the nations, the kings, the people who were a part of unfolding history towards its appointed end. And we know what all of Scripture points us back to. If you are a New Testament Christian, this is no surprise to you. If you have ever read through the book of Hebrews, this should not be a surprise to you. The Old Testament is a shadow of the fulfillment that we find at the foot of the cross in Christ Jesus. He is the one the prophets spoke of. He's the one the psalmists sing of. He is the one who is at the center of history as it unfolds. He is the creator of the world who would come to take upon himself the sin of the entire world. He is the one who will offer salvation and redemption to all who are willing to repent of their sin and turn towards him and place their faith in his life, death, and resurrection, and the grace that he offers. He is the one who is coming back to judge the living and the dead and to put an end to sin and death once and for all. All of Scripture points to God's plan of redemption that was, filled, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is an invitation back into relationship with the one who made us. And what Scripture unfolds before us is how that is possible, and we know how that is possible, and it's through a who. And that man is Jesus Christ, who is also God who came 2,000 years ago, that is, that is the, that's, the, that's the crescendo, but it's not the end, and we know that. And yet, as we look back, we do ourselves a disservice to lose sight of what all of this is pointing us to. And so we read each narrative, we read each moment in history through the lens of its intended design, which is to point us back to our designer, our creator, our Lord, our savior, the one who came and gave his life in place of you, in place of me. And so as we read Jonah, as we read Ruth, as we read through all of these narratives, as we look, guys, as we look at our own lives, do you know that you're a narrative? Did you know that you're a story that is unfolding? Did you know that your life was actually given to you as a means for you to look up? That it's not actually about your job. It's not actually about whether or not taxes get raised or lowered. It's not actually about who's in the White House. Or it's not actually about who you're going to marry or if you're going to marry or how many kids you're going to have or the the dog threw up or what, like these things that we make our lives about, these things that we lose ourselves in, such a small story. They are such small stories and yet the details of our small stories, our best days, our worst days, our deepest blessings and our most crushing circumstances are all a gift, believe it or not, that invites us to look to the one who made us and to press into relationship with him, worshiping him on the best of days, drawing upon his strength on the worst of days, Every single moment we face is an invitation back into a relationship that our sin marred, but that his sacrifice made possible once again, both now and for all of eternity. Praise God. Praise God. And so, yes, along the way, as we read through narrative, we learn more about who God is and we learn more about the way he's called us to live. But when it comes to Old Testament historical narrative, the driving purpose is to unfold all of the story of redemption before our eyes and to point us back to it again and again and again and again. What a gift the book of Hebrews is, because if you're dense like me, you'll just read the story and be like, no, it's uh, Ruth, it's it's a love story. That's what it is. So raise the richest tale. That's all it is. Ruth, good book. Like it a lot. Not sure why it's there. I'm dense. But like, the author of Hebrews comes in and says, hey, this is all, this, this is all more than that. Um, I just want you to know that in case you missed it. Oh yeah, I would have missed it. Okay, well, thank you. With that in mind, Let's turn our attention to the book of Ruth. I told you it was two sermons. One of them is done. But now we go to the second sermon in light of the first. So let's do that. We'll do a quick rundown of the book of Ruth so we can kind of set the tee, uh, set the ball on the tee. Ray? Tee it up? So we can tee it up, that's the golf analogy, for the guys who will come after me. You can edit that, right? You can make me sound smart? It's alive? Okay. I guess I'll just keep going then. Um, so turn with me to the book of Ruth. Uh, let's read Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 together. A lot in that first book, uh, first verse. And we will work our way line through line through the book of Ruth today um, so that we can understand all fortune. He's kidding. He's kidding, folks. Verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons ruth acts as a bridge between uh the period of the judges and the period of the king so it's not just placed where it is uh in in the old testament flow just because well ruth is small it'll it'll fit between these books no it, it's actually purposeful uh, the term in the, ta- in the days of Judges not only tells us about uh, where we are at on the historical timeline, but it also tells us a great deal about the spiritual climate of that day as well. Um, so as we look <clears throat> and we consider the time period of this somewhere in the middle of uh, the, the period of Judges, we get a good deal of like what's going on in Israel at that time. Uh, just look with me at the very last verse in the book of Judges, out of chapter 21, verse 25. Again, the book ends like this, and Ruth picks up like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you've ever read through the book of Judges... You know that whenever that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's not, oh yeah, the Israelites, they got it, right? They saw the, they saw the seas part, they, you know, they saw God's power, and so, you know, if they did what was right in their own eyes after everything that they saw, it, it's probably going to end up really well for them. No, that's actually not the case. It always ends up horrible. And so, Ruth, is a mile marker, both historically, this, this first chapter, um, it's both a historical and a spiritual mile marker of sorts. Uh, we, we find ourselves in a time of great spiritual darkness and rebellion within the nation of Israel. <clears throat> a time when people were largely self-governed by their own corrupt desires. And while God raised up judges during this time period to provide the occasional course correction, Israel was definitely in a downward spiral uh, headed for a not-so-good result. And then you enter into Ruth 1, verse 1. And the question that we're kind of hit with from a narrative standpoint is, will the story of Ruth add to this downward spiral? Will we continue as we ended Where we pick up where we left off and continue this spiral into further spiritual decay? Or will there be a shift in course? Will there be a change in the action? Will there be a positive swing to this? And so we read on in verses 2 through 5. And here we're introduced to a majority of the main characters. And uh, we see a little bit of the plot that's going to play out in Ruth. The name of this man that we we're speaking of in verse 1, was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They were in the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives the name of the first one was Orpha, and the second one was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we find two of our three main characters here, and the problem that kind of pushes the plot forward. Naomi, an Israelite woman from Bethlehem, loses her husbands and her two sons while they were sojourning in Moab which in that time basically means that she loses everything, right? She was in okay shape when her husband dies, and uh, her two sons are still there to uh, pick up their inheritance and kind of carry on the family name. But now her sons are dead, which means she's about to lose everything to the highest bidder. <clears throat> and all she has left are two Gentile Moabite daughters-in-law who are now destitute as well, right? Their husbands just died. They don't really have anything to their name. And so Naomi, knowing that there was nothing left for her in Moab, decides to return to Bethlehem where she has family who may be willing to care for her and where she isn't viewed as an outsider. But she encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab with their family and to possibly start over. You're young. Look at you. You're beautiful. You'll find a man. Stay here. There's nothing for me here. And so... After initially refusing, Orpah decides to listen to Naomi and decides to stay in Moab. But we see this uh, famous verse in Ruth in uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. We We see her refusal and her declaration of love for Naomi. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's probably why the book is named Ruth, and not Orpah. Anyway, uh, soon after this declaration of her loyalty to Naomi, both ladies make the journey back to Bethlehem. And it's here that we are introduced to our third main character um, at the beginning of chapter two. What's his name? Hey, some people have read Ruth before. What's his name? I always have to do that up in uh, up in youth group because the first one is like two people who go, and then the second one will be like, Three people who will go, boos. So thank you for being a little bit more than than double. I appreciate that. it's here that we're introduced to Boaz, uh, who, will, who we will find is a wealthy relative uh, of Naomi's family. And so according to Jewish law, uh, that puts him in the role of kinsman's redeemer. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this. Again, this is teed up to be better covered elsewhere. Uh, but basically, based on Jewish law, this male family member has the ability to rescue another family member, typically a woman, who has fallen into danger. Right, so we have, we have this very real set of awful circumstances that have fallen upon Naomi and now Ruth as well, who is traveling with Naomi, where they're about to lose everything. They're about to lose anything that they had to the highest bidder, and they're about to be left destitute. And so the role of the kinsman redeemer is in play to say, hey, if you are a family member, you don't have to, but you should care enough about your family if you have the means to be able to buy them out of the situation that they have, whether that be through marriage or some other means, to provide some form of redemption for them so that they can be saved from utter ruin. Again, this isn't something that was forced upon Boaz. He could make that decision. But again, it's one that, uh, as you read through the Jewish law, it's one that God encourages uh, those who can to make because it reflects his heart for those who are poor and in need. And so, uh, Boaz, relative, uh, a relative to Ruth's husband, uh, Naomi's son, becomes the redeemer of this family, we will find out, by marrying Ruth. And the rest of the narrative, let's be honest, it's just your, ca- your classic love story, isn't it? We just love it. Boy meets girl. Boy falls in love with girl. It's so beautiful. Oh, but there's an obstacle. They might not make it together. Dun, dun, dun But guess what? In the end, they overcome the obstacle. Oh, that's so good. And they get married, and they have babies, and they live happily ever after. It's just so beautiful. At face value, this is just a heartwarming, rags-to-riches story. Um, in it, we see God's compassion and faithfulness towards uh, those who are in need. And in it, we also see uh, solid moral lessons for us to keep trusting in God when times get hard. Right? If we just take it as this stand-alone, there's a lot of good stuff written in this book that we could pull from it. But to truly appreciate this slice of history, we do need to dig a little deeper. The story was written to show way more than the redemption of a single family, which it does show, but it also points to the future redemption uh, of the nation of Israel as well. Look at this curious way that this classic love story ends. I mean, it reminds you of any love story that you've ever Read or watched right, because it ends like this in four eighteen through twenty two now these are the generations of Perez, yeah, I mean, who doesn 't love a good genealogy at the end of a love story right it 's like the notebook here, here we go uh, her, 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 but, 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 but. here we go, herzon, fathered ram, ram, fathered aminadab, aminadab, fathered. Uh, Nashan, let's call it Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Not exactly your classic love story ending. Instead of the two of them driving away in a carriage with the cans kicking in the back with the just married sign, we have a genealogy. But a very purposeful genealogy, right? It not only links the son of Ruth and Boaz to way back to the tribe of Judah with Perez, but it also goes a little forward-looking too, right? Who's that, who's that last name there? David. As in who? Oh, David the king. Yes, King David. Very good. I'm glad you were paying attention. And so what we see here is that God uses The redemption of Ruth and Naomi to foreshadow future redemption for the nation of Israel through King David. Right? Remember back to verse 1, we found ourselves in dire straits. We found ourselves at a point in history where Israel's not heading in a good direction. And the question posed at the very beginning of the narrative, whether you realize it was posed or not, is, are we going to keep going in this direction Is stuff going to keep heading south or is there any hope? Is anything going to change? And what we see at the end of this love story is not, ah, good for Ruth, good for Naomi, good for their family. No, at the end of it, we see a taste of hope, a taste of redemption. A king is coming who is going to lead Israel out of their current state that they are in and into a, a much better place. now you can say, yeah, but you know what? things went south again for for Israel. I mean, I, I can just keep thinking beyond David, and even during david 's lifetime, like stuff wasn't stuff wasn 't perfect no you're right because the point really isn't even to point to David, but we know there's a much larger point that we're going to, right? You know that anything that points to King David also points to King Jesus. Anything that looks to, any good that came from David looks at the seed of David, the lion of the tribe of what? Oh, this is getting good. This is getting real Messiah, right? Like, you, you taste it, right? It's really pointing to Jesus, because he is the point of this narrative. He is ultimately what this story is pointing to. the one who offers redemption to more than just a family, more than just a nation. but as we read in Galatians four: four through five, he offers it to the entire world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Spoiler alert, God ultimately uses the historical narrative of Ruth to draw our eyes to the true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so, Ruth, this book that we're going to spend the next four weeks in, because it's more than a love story. It's more than telling us about the redemption of a a single family who fell on hard times due to some uh, really nasty circumstances. And it's even more than a story that points us to the fact that better days are ahead for the nation of Israel. Again, some people just stop there. As we go that step forward and we realize that this story, like every story, like every step of history, points us back to, brings us closer to, is made to draw us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we just simply spend the next four weeks and go through Ruth as a cute little love story... Or even if we go that next step and, and show kind of the, the role that it plays for, for bringing Israel out of its present not so good spiritual state into a little bit better not so good spiritual state, we're gonna, we're gonna miss what this book is actually pointing us to. God put Ruth where he did, when he did in history, to unfold it in such a way that we see Him, that we see King Jesus, that we see His coming, that we see what He is going to do, that we now as New Testament believers see what He did and see what He is going to do. It points us to the cross. It points us to our hope. And as New Testament believers again, it points us to our forever hope in Jesus Christ. That is what story, that's what history, that's what every story is made to do to cause us to lift our eyes off of what we see or what we think we see to the one who is unfolding every detail so that we will see him, that we will see him as he is. And so for those of you who are here today and you are believers in Jesus, you know what Christ did for you on the cross. You have placed your faith and received God's grace by believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you have made him the Lord of your life. He is sitting on the throne of your heart. He is calling the shots. And you are moving forward with your eyes on him. If that is you, then my challenge to to you and, and, frankly, to me after the week that I had, A lot of navel-gazing, a lot of focusing on needless details and little subplots and side stories and rabbit trails, and just a week of losing focus on who my king is and what matters most to him, on what our ultimate hope is and why we live the way that we do in a world that doesn't appreciate it or think that it needs it. Are your eyes on the author of your story? Is your hope, regardless if you're on a good day or a bad day or a tough season or a glorious season of blessing, where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? Ruth is an invitation. All of life is an invitation for you to look up and to see your Redeemer, to see your Savior, to see your King both now and forever and take the next step forward in light of who he is, what he has done, what he will do, and what he is doing both now and forever. Guys, that is the invitation. That is what Ruth invites us into. Will we who say we believe accept that invitation and look up and take the next step towards our King in obedience, in love, in worship, and adoration? I need that. I need that this week. I need to stop playing in the mud and look up and see where he is and what he's doing. And for those of you who are here today, maybe you've heard the gospel before, maybe you haven't. Well, you have because you heard it today. You heard at the perfect moment of time, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth, to walk it, to live a life perfect and to give his very blood as a covering for each and every sin that you could ever commit. And he didn't stay in the grave either. But instead, three days later, he rose from the dead to show the victory is his over sin and death. And he invites you through the book of Ruth and through every circumstance that you face in your life to look to him, to place your faith in him, to allow him to be your Lord, your savior, your king now and forever. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you truly done that? I'm not saying, do you know the details of the story? That's great. But have you placed your faith, have you given your heart to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior now and forever? If you haven't, then I want to invite you into a new kind of story today. There's going to be people up front, I will be up front. I get it if you don't want to hear my voice anymore. There's other voices you can talk to, but there is going to be people here who love you and care about you, even if they don't know you, who want to help you take that next step towards Jesus. Will you do that today? If you're at home, will you reach out? Harborshores.org or .church? I don't know. Either one will get you here. But will you send that email and start that conversation? It matters. It matters. Our lives matter because they point us back to, or at least they should, to the one who made us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this narrative, this slice of history that points us back to you. That points us back to the one who made us. And even after we fouled up everything that you made with our sin, the one who is in pursuit of us again and again and again. And we see it throughout the history of the Old Testament in this endless cycle that eventually rolls us right up to the cross where we see you dying for us, giving yourselves for us, offering yourselves as our true kinsman redeemer, the one who brings us out of the, the, the darkness the death of our sin, and brings us into new life. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that if those who are in here that know of you but are not living for you, I pray that they would look up today and live their lives in light of who you are. And for those that do not know you, have not bowed a knee to you, God, make today the day. Illuminate their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit right now. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.